is Our American Stories, and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections Jukin' in the Delta with My Old Man for a publication called HottyToddy.com, one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was. But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksdale had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who we probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got the sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if he had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. 
Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, how old are you? Followed by, okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. Stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy. Or, did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, let's just face it, it was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, a little piece of earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Stories. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news?
This is Our American Stories, and we try to give you every kind of story here on this show, from American history to the arts to sports, and stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and of course, business, and the great entrepreneurs and innovators of this great country, all of it. You can hear, go to ouramericannetwork.org to sign up, to subscribe to all that we do. We'll keep you up to date with a weekly newsletter. And go to iTunes and type in Our American Stories and search for our podcasts. There's so much there to enjoy. And now it's time for a story that's become legendary over the years. It's about a young criminal mastermind who was running away from the pain he was suffering over his parents' divorce. Though glamorized by Hollywood in the movie Catch Me If You Can, the first-hand account of what happened in the life of Frank Abagnale is just as remarkable as the film itself. Here's Jesse. Frank Abagnale is one of the best-known con men in American and perhaps world history. If you've seen Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can, you know what kind of criminal we're talking about. From 1964 to 1967, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for Pan Am Airways, and I flew over 2 million miles for free. During that time, I was also the chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital and an assistant attorney general for the state of Louisiana. By the time I was caught, I was considered the youngest and most daring con man in U.S. history. I had cashed almost $4 million in fraudulent checks in 26 foreign countries and all 50 states. And I did it all before my 19th birthday. My name is Frank William Abagnale. While the film was highly entertaining, sometimes it's best just to get the story straight from the source. Especially when it's a story as convoluted as the one you're about to hear. Frank Abagnale spoke to Google what really happened in his transformation from one of the world's most notorious con men to an international cybersecurity superstar in film and print. The takeaways that he shares are the real deal. I was raised just north of New York City in Westchester County, New York. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. I was educated there by the Christian Brothers of Ireland in a private Catholic school called Iona, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. Something happened in young Frank's life that would shake him to the core. His parents were getting a divorce. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father walked in the classroom one afternoon, asked a brother to excuse me from class. When I came out in the hallway, the father handed me my books and told me that one of the brothers would drive me to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I remember the brother dropped me at the steps of a big stone building and told me to go on up the steps and my parents would be waiting for me in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps, seeing a sign on the building that said family court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered into the back of an immense courtroom where my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, nor my parents' response, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room and motioned me to approach the bench, so I walked up to stand in between my parents. I remember distinctly that the judge never looked at me. He never acknowledged I was standing there. He simply read from his papers and said that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. Judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. 
My mother never saw me again for about seven years until I was a young adult. Contrary to the movie, my father never saw me or ever spoke to me again. So Frank did what many young men would do faced with such a situation. He ran. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad for the short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York. My father did own a stationery store in Manhattan. It was located on the corner of 40th and Madison. Like all of us, we had to work in that store, so from the time I was about 13, I made deliveries for my dad in the summer on a bike. I knew the city very well, so naturally, I started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock boy, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? Uh, 16. How far did you go in high school? Uh, 10th grade. I'll hire you. And I went to work for a small amount of money, a few hours a day, but I soon realized I couldn't support myself on that amount of money. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair. My friends in school used to say that once a week when we dressed in a suit for mass, I looked more like a teacher. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16. Back then, it didn't have a photo on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April of 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that made me 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was very difficult to make ends meet. By now you've probably noticed that Frank is an excellent storyteller, as you might expect a great con man to be. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. I had money from work on the summers. I had some money in that checking account. So every so often, I would write a check to supplement my income, $20, $25. The funds were there. The checks were good. But it was my friends, my peers, who would constantly say to me, you know, you're the only guy who walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan. You have no account there. You don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind a desk, and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. Yeah, but if I walked in there, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in there, they don't bat an eye. Now, years later, reporters would write and speculate and say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police started looking for me as a runaway. So I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago or Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. As the young con artist was just beginning to play with the world as he saw fit, Frank Abagnale would soon assume his role as the airline pilot. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. I couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it, I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody anywhere to cash a check for me. 
So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over. I heard a huge helicopter. So I looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world. I thought, what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. I remember distinctly when the phone was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd, like um, I'd like to speak to somebody in the uh, purchasing department. Purchasing? One moment. And the clerk came on and said, yes, sir, ma'am, can you help me? My name is uh, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years, but never had anything like this come up before. Oh, what's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out later today. Uh, yesterday, I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaners say they can't find it. Yeah, I'm with the flight in about four hours. New uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly. Back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Uh, do you understand this will cost you the price of uniform, not the company? I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fit me out in the uniform, the black Aberdeen, with three gold stripes on the arm. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. So no problem, I'll write you a check. No, um, <laughs> we can't take any checks. Oh, well, then I'll... Um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, put your employee number. Then we bill this back on the uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. Go ahead and do that. When we come back, the technical logistics behind pulling off a con that would fool a major airline into cashing checks and letting you fly around the world for free. It all started with the fake ID. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the story of the real-life Frank Abagnale, as told by Frank himself. He successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan Am World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, a Louisiana parish prosecutor, and now we return to his story. Here's Jesse. Logistics of securing a fake airline pilot ID badge with the intent of using it to get on and off or in and out of a plane seems like a daunting task, to say the least. But Frank, Frank makes it sound so easy. I was sitting in the hotel room. I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I pulled them down on the bed, flipped them open, and looked under the word identification. 
There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges. Started to call around, and finally one company said, Listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day. We're getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by dressed in a suit, and the sales rep opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Braniff, National, Pan Am, Pan Am. We like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a five by seven glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card blown up in the middle of it. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name, and in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one's too. You know, I need to bring back an actual physical card. And by the way, what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, now we don't just sell these cards; we sell the system, camera, laminator. Oh, we have to buy all this? Absolutely. Well, tell you what, since we have to buy it all, why don't we just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine, I have a seat right here. Took my picture and there's the card. Just imagine being a 17-year-old kid with the ability to fly all over the world pretending to be a pilot while cashing bad checks at every airport along the way and becoming filthy rich in the process. Once the sky's the limit, how high one can fly. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew more than a million miles for free, boarded more than 260 commercial aircraft in more than 26 countries around the world. Pan Am says, keep in mind the fact that Frank Abagnale did, in fact, pose as one of our pilots for a long period of time. He never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been out there 16 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. Or someone might say, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport, walked up on the board, United Flight 800 to Chicago, then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. The operations clerk, hey, Pan Am, what can we do for you? I wonder if the jump seats open on 800 needed it at Chicago. It's open this evening, I'd like to get a pink slip pass. I'd give him my ID, write me out a pass, I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant, she'd open the door to the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump suit, where pilots deadhead on company time. Now, being a criminal mastermind is a lot of work, and Frank was bringing the hustle, scamming banks and airlines from 9 to 5. I'd go down the Parma House Hilton, walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said, Airline Cruise. That was a three-ring binder you signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID. They'd give me a key. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk because I was an employee of the airline. The airline had a contract with the hotel, and as a courtesy, they'd cash your check. 
But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check, actually a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2017. So at the San Francisco airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk up to an American airline ticket counter, show her ID, and cash a personal check up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air Grand. It would take me a good eight hours, stopping at every counter in every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what did you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I'd go all the way back around the other way again. Impersonating pilots, doctors, lawyers, flying all over the world with millions of dollars he'd built out of every bank that would cash his check. He was inevitably caught. Of course, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was actually arrested just once in my life when I was 21 years old by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. The French police were actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for forgery in Sweden but believed that I was living in France. When the French authorities took me into custody on that warrant, they realized I had forged checks all over France, so they refused to honor the warrant and Sweden's request for my extradition. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called the Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, it was extremely important to me to go back to that cell, to the exact cell he was in, and reconstruct it according to the logbooks during his stay there. He said, to my amazement, that was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole in the floor to go to the bathroom, no plumbing, no electricity. He said, according to the logbooks, I entered the prison at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over in France, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law, and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmö, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities took custody of me and returned me to the United States. Eventually, a United States federal judge in Atlanta, Georgia, would sentence me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of the 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work with an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence or until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released. That agency is the FBI, where Frank continues to work to this day. This year I'm celebrating 41 years at the FBI. I've been at the Bureau for more than four decades. I work out of Washington, D.C. I actually make my home in Charleston, South Carolina. So every Monday I fly up to Washington, about an hour flight, and I go home on Thursday evenings. I live in Charleston with my one and only wife of 40-plus years and my three sons. And when we come back, Frank Abagnale shares his thoughts of regret and remorse over his criminal life as a young man. Find out what really happened right here on Our American Stories. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. And what a story, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. You hear from the people themselves as often as possible about their own stories, your stories too. And you can go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. 
Sign up there. Register with us. Give us some details. We'll be able to get back in touch with you about all that we do each week. And again, go to iTunes and search for Our American Stories. And when we come back, more from Frank Abagnale. What a story, folks. Just a little bit different than the movie. More after these messages. Once I get you up there, I'll be holding you so near. You may hear angels cheer, cause we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Once I get you up there Where the air is rarefied This is Our American Stories and we return to the story of Frank Abagnale who was played beautifully by Leonardo DiCaprio in Steven Spielberg's highly entertaining 2002 film, Catch Me If You Can. By the way, it did worldwide ticket sales of over $350 million, or six times more than the $52 million the movie cost to make. The film was shot in more than 140 locations in just 52 days. That's an average of almost three locations a day, many of them in and around L.A., but quite a few in New York, Montreal, and as anyone who's worked on a film set can tell you, even a move of a few blocks is a pretty big undertaking. Spielberg and his crew worked fast. And now back to the real story of Frank Abagnale and Catch Me If You Can. Here's Jesse. In this candid speech that the real-life Frank Abagnale gave to Google about his criminally mischievous adventures... He doesn't see himself as a legend of any sort, and unlike how he might be perceived by his fans, is ultimately remorseful for the sins of his youth. As many of you know, I had very little to do with the film. Um, I would have preferred not to have a movie made about my life. I actually raised my three boys in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same house for 25 years. My neighbors had no idea who I was. And I would have preferred it stayed that way. But Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters he felt compelled to tell the world the story, not because of what I did, but because of what I'd done with my life after that. He loved the redemption side of the story, wanted the world to know the story. So in the end, my family and I were very pleased with the outcome of the film, but we thought in a couple of years that would all be forgotten and move on with our life. I never dreamed that Catch Me If You Can would go on to earn more than a billion dollars for DreamWorks and be shown over and over, literally every week on HBO and TV, and then become a Broadway musical and a TV show. So consequently, every Monday morning when I come to work, I have emails. They come from all over the world. Someone who's seeing the movie for the first time, watching the play at a community theater or a high school somewhere, 
and they feel compelled to write. And of course, they come from people literally as young as eight years old sending those emails to people as old as 80. Most people assume I'll never read those emails or see those emails, but they feel compelled to write and they want to make a statement. Some say, you know, you were brilliant. You were an absolute genius. I was neither. I was just a child. Had it been brilliant, had it been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. And while I know that people are fascinated by what I did some 50 years ago as a teenage boy, I've always looked upon what I did as something that was immoral, illegal, unethical, and a burden I live with literally every single day of my life and will until my death. The great Frank Abagnale, one of the greatest con men in history, haunted by the immoral and unethical acts of theft and forgery. It turns out that Frank had been running away from his parents' divorce since he was a child. There are many who write and say, well, you know, you were certainly gifted. That I was. I was one of those few children that got to grow up in the world with a daddy. Now, the world is, the world is full of fathers. But there are very few men worthy of being called daddy by their child. I had a daddy. Loved his children more than he loved life itself. Steven Spielberg told Barbara Walters, the mirror I researched Frank's youth. Now, without having met Frank, I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who had four children, three boys and a daughter. Every night at bedtime, he'd walk into your room. He was 6'3". He would drop down on one knee, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he'd put his lip up on your earlobe and he'd whisper deep into your ear, I love you, I love you very much. He never, ever missed a night. As I grew older, I sometimes fell asleep before he got home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been at my bedside. Years later, my older brother joined me in my room temporarily. He was in the Marine Corps. He was 6'4". He played semi-pro football for Buffalo. But my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. Much as we'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, they need their mother and they need their father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger, a judge, told me I had to choose one parent over the other. That was a choice a 16-year-old boy could not make. So I ran. While Frank was running farther away from the pain of his parents' divorce, his father had an accident, and Frank never got to say goodbye. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language. The only people that associated with me were people who believed me to be their peer, 10 years older than I actually was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would think otherwise. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. 
My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad gets up in the middle of the night and goes down to the TV room? Because, you know, he doesn't turn the TV on. He just sits there all night. That's because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that pitch black cell in France, my father, 57, was climbing the subway stairs of New York as he did every day. He was in great physical shape. He just happened to trip. He reached his arm to break his fall. He slipped, hit his head on a railing, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead. I was thinking about him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was. But I never got the opportunity to do that. With all the ups and downs in Frank's life, he remains grateful to the country that gave him a second chance. In closing this speech that you can hear again at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the great Frank Abagnale's crown achievement isn't his famously criminal shenanigans, but his family. This is Our American Stories. I was very fortunate because I was raised in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I can ever repay it over these past four decades. That is why I'm at the FBI today, 32 years after the federal court order expired requiring me to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three sitting presidents of the United States because I do not believe, nor will I ever believe, that a piece of paper will excuse my actions, that only in the end my actions will. Forty-plus years ago, on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. When the assignment was over, I broke protocol to tell her who I really was. I didn't have a dime to my name, but I eventually asked her to marry me. Against the wishes of her parents, she did. I could sit up here and tell you that I was born again, I, I saw the light, prison rehabilitated me. But the truth is, God gave me a wife. She gave me three beautiful children, she gave me a family, and she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today, is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetime we grow older, and eventually, if we're fortunate enough, we have children. And as every parent knows, whether your child's three months old or... 38 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night, you're just about to close your eyes. The last thing you think about, last thing you worry about, are your children. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give them a hug, you give them a kiss, you tell them you love them, why you can. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to actually be a man. It has absolutely nothing to do with money achievements, skills, accomplishments, degrees, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man next to God and his country put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's actually brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day of my life, a great daddy. God bless you, and thanks for coming this morning. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. And that's a heck of a story. That dad who whispered I love you in his ear every night, never missed a night, Frank remembers. 
I cried myself to sleep until I was 19 years old. And he never wanted that pardon. Didn't want it. Wanted to remember what he did. And of course, talking about family, which we do so much of here on this show, he thanks God first, he thanks his wife second, and the family, and that's what it's all about. And for any of you contemplating divorce, you're hearing or thinking about this story, as you contemplate that divorce, think about it. Think about your kids. Think about reconciling. Think about forgiving. Think about keeping it together. Because listen to young Frank. You can still hear that young voice, that pain of that divorce. And it is devastating. You heard it from Frank Abagnale himself. This is Our American Stories. Frank Abagnale's story. In a way, his entire family's story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org again to hear that story and all that we do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons, from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It's, it sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, Perseverance. When we hire people, we look at their resumes, and when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume, and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments how many years he or she spent at that, and then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it, okay? I just see how many years, how many years, and if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the detail to see if that person fits the job and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building, you can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something takes time. To build a career takes time. 
To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay. And we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early. And it, we call them Perseverance Awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here 35 years or more. Fantastic perseverance. And of course, they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. and happens to be a watch. I don't happen to be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back, your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio, it turns out. It's, well, everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I don't know why we're talking about it here, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it. It looks like a fine watch, but there are solar cells inside the watch and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. So it's perseverance. That watch is gonna be around as long as you're gonna be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your the, the date when you began engraved on the back. Then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll, I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money just after 10 years, right? Now, you know, getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you a watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire, right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years. So we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Carter where you want to go and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there. 15 years or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years. Yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star with, uh, with as many friends as you can invite. I think it's worth $20,000 or 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know. That, that, that cost me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to, but hey, it's a free world. It's your money now, $25,000. Give it in any amounts to anybody you want. So we're making our employees, we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist. What other companies do that? 
Now recently, I'm gonna jump forward to 35 years, $35,000 to help you do your bucket list. Whatever you want, this is it. This is the time you're old enough. Make that list, have fun. Because otherwise, people probably wouldn't do it. And that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list. This is not to be to pay down the mortgage. It's not for the grandkids' uh, education. It's for your bucket list. And we require that you tell us how you spent the money. We want to share in that joy. So that's what perseverance means to us. We value it and we pay you to persevere. We reward you to persevere. And thanks for that, Dr. Bob. And if you're listening and you run and own a business, take heart how you treat your people. Well, what you do with that money and what you do with that time will determine outcomes. Perseverance. Life lessons from Dr. Bob here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories from every part of this great country. North, south, east, west, big cities, little towns, and everything in between. And today we bring you a story from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name for being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And if Midland is known for anything, it's for the tremendous oil and gas resources that power our nation. And one of the leading energy entrepreneurs there is a guy by the name of Tim Dunn, who's been married to his wife, Terry, for over 40 years. And today brings us a story from his book, Yellow Balloons. I'm in that phase of having grandkids. We have our number 18 on the way now. That came from six children who are now all married. And we had six kids in nine years. And Mary Catherine, our oldest daughter, her uh, husband, Tim, and she moved to town. So Mary Catherine and Tim moved in with us, and they had two daughters, Wheatley, who was four at the time, and Mariah, who was about one. So they lived with us while they were looking for a house. Then they found a house, but it was a fixer-upper. So they were going through fixing it up. So they ended up living with us for nine months. And during that time, of course, we got to see Mariah and Wheatley every day. And Mariah went from being a rug rat to a curtain climber to a toddler. She was a real joy as a kid. When there was a party of some kind, she would lap surf. She would go from lap to lap based on whatever food was in front of her. Whoever had the best goodies, that's whose lap she wanted to be in. Obviously, you're always attached to your grandkids, but this was more like our kid. Mariah had some fever-induced seizures, which means she'd get a low-grade fever and didn't have a seizure. 
So we got six kids, and five of them are in the oil business with us. But David was beat to his own drum. He's almost just like me, which means we butted heads all the way growing up. So um, I remember when as a junior, he was like, you know, you're controlling me. You don't give me any freedom. And I said, here's what freedom is. You pay the rent. You pay the car payment. You pay your own insurance. And you will be free in 18 months. And I can't wait. And I saw his eyes get as big as saucers. We never had any more problems. (laughs) So David went and he got an engineering degree. And so his brother's really leaning on him to come back to us. We needed help really bad. But he decided he's going to be a musician. And he said, I just don't want to look back and wonder what I could have done. So he gave himself two years. And that was about 10 years ago now. One of his songs just won an award for a song of the year in Christian music called I Want to Go Back. When I was a kid, I was sure I could run across the ocean. Now I was going to be an astronaut. It was you and it was me I had everything I needed Faith could even move a mountain top And then I grew up And then I got older And my life got tough And we grew apart So David is in Nashville And he's, he's the only one that's not with us And he had really not been to Midland for about nine months but he had a, an event that he was booked for, so he was in town. And he had a song on the radio at that time, his first song to play on the radio called Today is Beautiful. And it's a song about perspective. And here's where the song came from. It came from our family all being at Disneyland. Our, our family likes to take big trips together. We discovered that if we'll pay, everybody comes. <laughs> so <laughs> we were at Disneyland or Disney World, and... Lee's kids at the time were about four and two, named Brady and Addie. So Addie was pushing the empty stroller, and Brady wanted to push that stroller, and Addie wouldn't let him. And so Brady just had a complete meltdown. There was a lot of laughing about that. Here we are at Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Got all these rides around you, and here's this kid melting down because I can't push a stroller, something you can do anywhere on earth. And David in particular thought, you know, we kind of do that as humans. We're, we're in a Disneyland, really. The amazing opportunities we have in life, and we're melting down because of the bumper sticker on the car in front of us. But we kind of do this to ourselves. So if we can lift your eyes and see it in a different light, you'll realize everything is beautiful. That's the core of the song. So he came to town, and Mariah and particularly really loved this song. And she couldn't speak well enough to sing the whole thing, but the chorus goes something like... That's how it goes. So she would say, eyes, light, sky. She would just do that one tag word on the end. And she called him Uncle Days because she couldn't date Dave, so it was a Days. So every time the song came on the radio, she would, Uncle Days, and she would sing along. So Uncle Dave was a big favorite. And, of course, he's the only out-of-town uncle, so he's a big favorite. So he came to town. So we went over to Becky's house. Mary Catherine was at her sister's house with Mariah. And 
Mary Catherine was holding Mariah, and David said, hey, Mariah. And Mariah was just not feeling like up to date. She had a really light grade fever. And so she just didn't feel too good. So we said, oh, okay, well, you know, she will go and let her take a nap, and, and then we'll see her later. So I took Dave, and we had a new office building at the time, and I took him to go on a tour of the office. And I got a call from Terry that was, uh, you know, you got to come home right now. Mariah's not responsive. So we flipped around and went home and uh, realized that the ambulance we had passed was Mariah going to the hospital. And Terry had been outside going for a walk. And Mary Catherine was kind of keeping an eye on Mariah because these fever-induced seizures. So she went in, looked, and Mariah was blue. So she screamed. Terry had just gotten back. She went in, immediately did CPR. They called up. EMTs, they were there in five minutes. So really, they caught it in plenty of time. They got her color back. But we learned later that about 90% of the time with the little kids, they can't start their hearts. And that was it. They just couldn't restart her heart. So she's in a nap. She was perfectly fine. And she just died. So here we all are, and you know you have this immense tragedy. I knew that when couples lose kids, that the divorce rate's pretty high. So I immediately called our pastor and said, hey, we need help, because uh, I, I don't want to see our family break up or see people, you know, families within our family break up. And he said, well... We're just bringing in this program called Grief Share, which I recommend. It helped our family immensely. But here's the bottom line. If you grieve together and you understand the way other people want to grieve and you grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you hurt more faster, but the event will bring you together. But the human tendency is to not want to have pain. So when the pain comes and it's your day to grieve, but not the other person's day, what tends to happen is the other person will withdraw because they don't want to feel that pain that day. So you get a little further apart. And then tomorrow it's their grief and you're okay that day. So you withdraw and people just drift apart because they wouldn't grieve together. And this is the way I personalized it. I'm an oil and gas investor, right? I understand investment. If you invest in other people's pain and grieve with them the way they want to grieve, you're investing in what's left, which is the relationships you still have. So what that looked like for me is every time, for, I mean, for months after, I, every time I saw somebody, they wanted to talk about Mariah's death. And, and they wanted to grieve with me. You know, it, it's a grief for them too. Now, from my standpoint... I didn't really want to grieve anymore. You know, I grieved enough. But you know what? Because of that perspective that my pastor gave us, I was able to say, I want to grieve with this person because I'm investing in this relationship. This is what remains. And when we continue, more of the story of Tim Dunn, Mariah, and so much more about life and living from this terrific American voice. Tim Dunn's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories. 
To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons, and it's about, well, it's about a loss, but it's also about how to live a life. And when we last left off, we were hearing about grief, and my goodness, what good good advice for anybody who is going through such a thing right now, a real tragic loss in the family, and how to deal with it with other people. But now we continue with the story of Tim Dunn's family and yellow balloons, because, well, what I loved about this book is that it wasn't really about grief. It was about how to live a good life. What the book is really about is not grief, per se. It's how to choose a perspective. Because when something tragic like that happens to you, you're forced to choose a perspective. You're forced to think, well, how am I supposed to look at this? But really, every day all day long, we're choosing a perspective. Most of the time, we're not even aware we're doing it. And if we are aware, we're not thinking to ourselves, what is the correct perspective? What's true? And and the book mainly is about the power, the immense power, the overwhelming power to choose how we look at things. There's only three things we get to choose as humans. We get to choose who we trust, what we do and how we look at things, our perspective, the perspective we choose. That's it. Now, we tend to try to control other people. We can influence other people. We can't control it. We can't make choices for other people. We try to control the weather. We get mad at the weather. We try to control traffic lights. We try to control all kinds of things, our sports teams. Here's my worst one. I try to control basketball officials. It's futile. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work, and it makes me unhappy, and I lose. I've done it ever since I was a kid. I was a bad player. I would think about the refs instead of thinking about the game. It's counterproductive, okay? So really, the question is, what's, what's true about what's going on? And what our pastor helped us do then is choose a true perspective. But really, all day long, every day, we should be thinking to ourselves, What's the true perspective? In order to choose a true perspective, we have to decide, well, what do I believe in? And that's going to shape what we choose to do. And if we do that well, if we do that well, then we will have a great life, no matter what circumstances are, a great life that will go on forever. It it changes eternity when we do that well. If we don't do that well, It's self-induced destruction, and it's misery. The valley is really the only time you generally are aware of your circumstances. 
<laughs> right? Because the, the circumstances make you be aware. And the valley is when difficulty comes, uh, disappointment. Your expectations are shattered. And I call it a Job-like experience after the biblical book of Job. But the valleys are the times really usually when growth is most accessible because the circumstances force you to reflect and to decide, do I want to do something different from what I'm used to doing? But most of our life is lived on the plains, everyday routines, and we tend to not value those and not think of them as anything special. We tend to think of the valleys as times we want to avoid and the mountaintops, like when when things are great, when you had some success or achievement that you wanted to have, that that's the desirable place and the plains don't really matter. But really, the plains is where most of life is lived. Uh, The word routine means is the derivative of a Latin root that means well-traveled. You know, it's it's where our habits are. And that's really where most of life's opportunity exists. And I had a, I had a very tangible example of this that came to me through Mariah. She died on a Friday, and the Wednesday before she died, which she was, she was perfectly fine until she died in this nap. You know? And so Wednesday before she came, she's again, she's living with us. And she, she, I, was, I was in the house by myself with her for some reason, and she came over to me and said, Tramping, tramping. And I said, you saying trampoline? So, well, do you want me to go out and bounce you on the trampoline? Yeah. So, okay. And so I went over and I opened the door and she goes hodling out, kind of, you know, about a quarter out of balance, go popping out there. And so I bounced her on the trampoline for a while and she giggled. And then our trampoline's built into the ground so we can kind of childproof it. <clears throat> so it's a, there's a hole underneath it. So she started getting under that hole and playing peekaboo with me. And every time she would pop up, she'd, you know, belly laugh. Oh, we might have done that for 20 minutes or something. It wasn't, it was just an everyday event. And, you know, and it's easy to say no to kids. It's, it's not usually something, but I always try to say yes, you know. Not long after, you know, my, uh, uh, one of my four-year-olds asked me to play Hungry Hungry Hippo. Really what I thought inside was, I don't want to play Hungry Hungry Hippo, but I said, sure, I'll go play Hungry Hungry Hippo. So, you know, it was an everyday event. Well, it's really my last memory of Mariah. Okay, so you think, well, it was really special. Was it? Is it? Was it special? Yes, it actually was. But was it different than every other opportunity? No. Every opportunity you have to interact with another human, every opportunity you have, it's all special. If you can choose your perspective that way, then really all of life is this unbelievable, wonderful uh, adventure. Now, the Bible says... Uh, Life is like a wisp of vapor. That's a comparative thing. Compared to how long we're going to exist, the life on this earth is not going to last very long. But it's the only time we'll get the opportunity to live where God's presence is veiled from us to enough extent where we can live by faith and make choices without any compulsion, you know, when you see something so clearly, you, you don't really have a choice, right? But now things are kind of murky, and you have to really think, you know, what's true? What perspective am I going to choose? So this life, although it's short, it's shaping who we become forevermore. And, and that part of it's not, not, we can't ever 
That's not repeatable. This is a one-shot deal. And if you look at those everyday routines like that, well, it puts a whole new spin on it. And then you have the mountaintops when things are, everything's wonderful, man. This is just what I want to have. But, you know, mountaintops are the most dangerous. First of all, if you become, let's say, extraordinarily wealthy, are wealthy people happier than everybody else? Is that what the statistics tell us? No, no. They're more fearful, typically, right? Because you're holding on. I got to stay up on this mountaintop. You know, I got to be. Well, you know, the mountaintops are a place where you can forget what reality is. You can kind of get the illusion that you do control things because you can kind of buy everything you want, right? But, you know, all trains just terrain. If, if you learn to look at it as, oh, you know, here I am. So now, how do I look at it? What's true? Who do I trust? What do I do? Now you're living out of your values and you're going to have success no matter what. And that was Tim Dunn. The book is Yellow Balloons. And my goodness, we love bringing ordinary stories from ordinary Americans to you, and particularly wisdom, which is a hard thing to come by these days. And there's a lot of wisdom in what Tim Dunn says. And whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, the values, the principles that he's talking about, my goodness, we all have something to learn from Tim. Again, his book is Yellow Balloons. You can go to timdunn.org, and that's Tim, D-U-N-N.org. Tim Dunn's story, his granddaughter Mariah's story, what a loss, but how to deal with grief, and that's everyone's story because it's coming around to everybody sooner or later. All of that, all of those stories here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by The Doors, Give Me Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts, hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling, and now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. 
it's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it on September 6th of that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans They call the rising sun now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. God, I'm a one. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. Well, I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. So, you know, I thought he was really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight house of the rising sun lyric, and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if, I, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a suitcase and a trunk. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying. But I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> that version from the Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children. 
of rising sun. When Bob Dylan first heard the animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric. Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise an idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis. Since cures with mercury were ineffective, going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions, which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. Surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from some that say the building is just part of our imagination, a symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy 
and me oh god i'm one my mother was a tailor she sewed these old My father was a gambler down in New Orleans. The only thing a gambler needs. Is a suitcase and a trunk, and the only time he's ever satisfied is when he's on a drunk. 